Have you ever heard anything absurd before? Every day. Every day, yes. Um, Me too. And, I mean, you could go down the list of absurd stories. I chose not to go through some because I thought, you know what? There might be a few people who may not think that's absurd. And I I don't want to get in trouble. (laughs) But I was told once as a young lad never to accept something that was too good to be true. Because that's often what scam artists will do. They offer you something that seems too good to be true. You take the bait. You're done. Um, never accept something that's too good to be true. Okay. But then you realize that there's a gospel. There's good news. But what I, what I realized was that, yes, the gospel's absurd, but it's not absurd in the ordinary way that's breaking the bounds of what's considered proper. Right? People can break the bounds of what's proper, and you can call that absurd. The gospel is absurd in the sense that it's breaking the bounds of what is possible. It's breaking the bounds of what is possible. So in other words, you hear the message that there is a God who wants to rescue you from your sin and enslavement to sin. Uh, from your enslavement to sin. He wants to pull you out of that. He wants to give you new life. He wants to fill you with all of his goodness and give you the hope of living with him for eternity. You hear that and you could think, oh, too good to be true. I'm not sure if I can trust that. No, because the gospel is absurd in the sense that it is breaking the bounds of possibility. This is not just news that is too good to be true. This is news that is too good not to be true. It's too good not to be true. Let me give you C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity, and maybe you'll see what I mean. He says, Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. Consider this. If we were to create our own invention, our own religion, if we, through our ingenuity and imagination, were to create a story about God and humans, we would not have set it up the way it is in the gospel. And one of the things that is most confounding to us, the New Testament confirms this, our passage is going to show it to us. We have, be, we have, we've been walking Christ for so long, perhaps, that we have forgotten the absurdity of what we proclaim. The whole idea that was preached when the church began was that there, the Messiah you waited for was crucified. Now think about this for a minute. A crucified Messiah. That was an oxymoron to the people awaiting the Messiah. These were two incompatible truths. Crucified Messiah. Messiah was supposed to be the son of David. He's supposed to be on the throne of Israel. Messiah literally means God's anointed one. And who did the prophets anoint? They anointed kings. The Messiah was supposed to come and take the throne for Israel and fulfill the the prophecies that one day the nations will come to Jerusalem as the center of the earth. The Messiah was to make this happen. And so the minute the Messiah is crucified, he cannot by expectation be the Messiah. Okay, so you see what I'm saying is that even when God promises that someone's coming, his people take that to mean, all right, he's going to be powerful. He's going to lead us into our fantasies and fulfill our dreams. That's what God's supposed to do. And if you have a religion that has been produced out of our ingenuity, out of our imagination, it would reflect something like us. But what we get instead in the gospel, in the Bible, is we get something that you would never want to make up. We get something absurd. That's why Christ, uh, that's why C.S. Lewis accepted Christianity. It was too absurd not to be true. Okay, so let's look at the absurdity in this passage, shall we? Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to connect chapters 52 and 53. Um, usually... 
we emphasize chapter 53, but there's a narrative going on here, and I want to show it to you. So, um, in fact, before we get to it, I, I do need to bring us up to speed. It's been a few weeks. Remember that Isaiah, we're in the second movement of three in this great book that moves like a symphony with great swelling crescendos and deep disturbing moments of judgment. This is the second movement. So the first one was stormy and volatile and Yahweh's like, you need to trust me or you're going to suffer. And Israel's like, yeah, I don't know. And they end up not trusting him. Second movement is this um, assumption that in the future, yeah, they're not going to trust Yahweh. So they're going to go into exile. They're going to be slaves in Babylon. They're going to lose the temple. They're going to doubt whether or not God loves them. So the second movement opens with Isaiah chapter 40. It says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. You have paid double for your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And so the second movement is now all about comfort. It's like the great stormy symphony has brought this calm, beautiful finger tinkering on the piano. And in that passage, Isaiah says, there is a way in the wilderness. And there is a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare this way. And all flesh will see God. This path is leading to restoration, to this healing, to this reunification between humans and God. This, this, this all, the exile's done, the homelessness is done, the pain, the suffering, the sin is done. And we're going to see that conclusion next week as we wrap up the second movement. But there's a struggle in the second movement of Isaiah do you remember we spent four weeks on the big struggle? The struggle was idolatry. That Israel was lusting and going for these false ideas of God or, or worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And we had a few messages bringing Smurfs in here and talking about the different ways we have idols. One of the biggest being the idol of self and that God's leading us to a true worship of him. See, this idolatry is heavy, chapter 46 said. Remember? Chapter 46 said, you are going around carrying your gods when God wants to carry you. You're missing it. And this is why you're struggling on this pathway, this highway through the wilderness. You're struggling to get on the path that God has for you because you're burdened by your worship for stuff and things. And God wants to carry you. Isaiah 40 had said he wants to give you wings to help you soar through the wilderness on this path. So our solution is the servant. That's all Isaiah calls him is the servant. Sometimes it says, Yahweh says, my servant. The servant we've seen in the New Testament is Jesus because the New Testament writers over and over use these servant passages to say, and that's what Jesus did, and Jesus was a servant. And you'll see tonight very clearly it's Jesus. So the servant figure comes to say, I will carry your burdens. I want to lead you through this path through the wilderness. And when you open to the New Testament, you see John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River. And what is he proclaiming? Well, the gospel writers say he is that voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And so Jesus comes leading us on this path through the wilderness. So we've seen the servant. Four passages. This is our fourth. Okay, this is top of my head. <laughs> Let's see if we can go through these. The first servant passage. It was in chapter 42. And we looked at how he was the servant who was not making a lot of fanfare, right? He served us um, in a strange way, the seismic shifts. Remember that? He went to the spaces and the cracks, and that from there, earthquakes were sent to the power center of Israel. And that's when, they, well, what's he doing? Jesus is doing that today. To follow the servant is to go to the places that are not the noisy center, but those margins, the spaces and those cracks. That's where the seismic shifts happen. Then the second one is Isaiah 49, serving a severed world. That in the servant, not only will Israel be healed and brought back together, but the nations, the Gentiles are called in the New Testament. The non-Jews, those that don't have a real God, they will be brought in. And we are, we are products of that servant. 
So true servants of God are also bringing the world together rather than fracturing the world. And then um, in chapter 50, this was two weeks ago, we saw that the servant uh, came and morning by morning he was awakened to learn, to speak words of healing from God. So that was serving with the right light. And there's a lot of fake lights out there, which Isaiah warned about. He said, beware of those who start their own fires. We have a world that is lighting its own fires, literally through entertainment and all the light displays and cell phones and tablets and computers and the internet and Vegas with all of its lights and Hollywood with its films. And you go on and on. We're literally making our own fire and we're worshiping ourselves. But it was the morning light God's light of the morning when he speaks to us, that's what the servant goes to first. He wants to be trained from God, not from the ways of the world. And so now the final servant passage is here before us. All right, let's see the startling story of the good news. Isaiah chapter 52. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. In other words, Jerusalem, get ready. Lift yourself out of the ashes and out of the dust because God is going to restore you. And those uncircumcised pagans, they aren't coming to you anymore. Except in a way to worship God. They're not coming to you to sack your city anymore. So verse 2, shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So awake, awake. We've got good news. So this first part of the story we're going to see is that there is good news. And the gospel actually comes first in this. We see it being used in this passage. You see good news. And the New Testament writers talk about the good news. So here we go. Let's look down at verse 7 now. So Isaiah is foreseeing this time when, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Do you remember in Ezekiel, they saw Yahweh's glory leave the city Jerusalem. Because these people have turned their back on me. I got to get out of here. The city was taken by the Babylonians. But Isaiah is saying there will be a time and we will see Yahweh return to Zion. Then in verse 9. So break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I see him coming. The messenger by foot is coming, and he's declaring to Jerusalem, Good news! Gospel, evangelion is the Greek word in the New Testament. Good news, Zion, your God reigns. He is not defeated by the Babylonian gods or all the idols of the world. He is returning to Zion, to his home place, and he is going to sit on the throne, and he's going to reign. So, my people, join in singing. Clap your hands. You're face to face. Eye to eye, we will see the salvation of God. So, depart, verse 11 saying, leave Babylon. Leave the kingdoms of this world Because God is returning his people to his kingdom. And he, remember in Egypt, they had to flee, right? Run from the Egyptians. He's saying this time, 
you're not going to be in flight. You are going to have the world bringing you back to Jerusalem. God will be ushering you and protecting you all around. Good news. Notice that the good news is encapsulated in verse 7 with your God reigns. Friends, that's the good news. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, he was risen from the dead. But we often forget that he ascended to the right hand. Our God reigns. He defeated the devil. He defeated the powers of sin. He reigns. And that is the good news. We are not ruled by Hitler. We're not ruled by Caesar. We're not ruled by the President of the United States. We belong to the kingdom of God. He reigns. And that's the gospel. That's the good news is that we don't have to serve the kingdoms of man and that they will not last forever. Yes, we happen to have one of the greatest kingdoms ever erected, but we must remember that this is not our destiny. This is not our citizenship. We're borrowing time in this kingdom, but God is our king and his kingdom is the one we are loyal to. The gospel declares that we belong to God's rule. And that's the good news. Okay. And I think we've seen enough in Isaiah, especially in this passage, that God being in charge is a good thing. He's not going to say, and by the way, the New Testament says this. He's not going to say when he becomes king, all right, taxes everyone. We have these major building projects to get underway. And I want to make sure nobody starts an uprising. So we got to make sure everybody stays just hungry enough. That's what Caesar did. Leave the 99 just desperate enough that they can't start an uprising. Rome knew what they're doing, but it was not kind to the human being. Christ, instead of receiving from his people, his kingdom, he gives to his kingdom. That's what grace is called. He's pouring out his blessings to his kingdom. He takes the throne. He opens up the treasure house of the kingdom. He says, all right, people, come on. Don't even get in line. Come on, come get it. Come get it. And he pours out his spirit upon his people. This is good news. We have a good king and a good kingdom that shall not perish. Okay, though, how does God become king? How does God dethrone the pretenders of history? This is where we enter the startling story of the good news. Good news. But this is the part that's absurd. This is the part that you and I wouldn't write. Let's be honest. God became king. So he comes down, he, he just throws his lightning bolts, and he just says, boom, I'm the creator. And like everybody falls to ash, and everything around us. It was so amazing. And then he gave us weapons, and we just cleaned out all the losers. And like, I mean, watch movies. That's how we do it. The servant doesn't do it that way. Isaiah 52, verse 13. So here he comes. 52.13, behold, my servant. So what we're going to see is two voices, and they're going to alternate. It's going to start with God's voice. We're reading that now. It's then going to turn to the we voice. There's a people. And I think it's totally fair to see yourself associated in this we. Then it's going to go back to God's voice. All right? So there's going to be three segments here. So segment one, this is God speaking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Oh, one more note as we go. Um, you might notice there's a ton of footnotes in this chapter. Um, that's because there's a lot of Hebrew words here that could be translated this way or that way. So I'm going to go with my translation and you go with yours and you can read the footnotes to get more. But I'm not going to belabor the whole evening with, okay, and this word could mean this. I'm not going to do that, okay? We're going to get the general sense of what is happening here. Okay, so there we go again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, so far, so good. God is king. That's the good news. And, and now God's speaking. All right, I'm going to put my servant into that high and exalted place. This is Christ, right? Christ was high and exalted. Okay. But in verse 14, it gets strange. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that 
of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle or startle many nations. How startled will the nations be at his figure, at his form, at his appearance? So startled that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. You can imagine you see something that startles you. It's absurd. And all you can do is cover your mouth. That, that's, that sense of being startled that you don't have words. You're so taken aback, so in awe. You're just, kings shall shut their mouths For that which has not been told, or it's been unheard of, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Suddenly things that are unheard, that are unthinkable, are now right before them. They are startled into silence. Why? Because his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. He doesn't even look like a child of mankind. There is something so grotesque, something so unrecognizable, something so strange, so bizarre, so absurd that the kings of the earth are taken aback. Disgusted, horrified, shocked. What is this? And yet this is what God said is my servant who will be high, lifted up and exalted. Okay, so you see that it's startling, God's plan, this good news. It's, it's taking the nations aback. Now in chapter 53, verse 1, the we begin to talk. And you get the sense that they see something, and they're, 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 they, they're even dumbfounded by what they're seeing. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Like, I don't blame you if you don't believe it. It's strange. And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he, the servant, he grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So he had nothing set up for him, right? He was not born into prosperity. Dry ground. There's nothing going for him, yet he grew up like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing nothing at all that you would see him say, that is the king. That's the savior. This guy's awesome. None of that. Nothing going for him, whatever. Instead, he was a man, excuse me, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is very much what the New Testament says. And I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul seems to be very much informed by Isaiah when he says this. Isaiah 5.21 For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says so succinctly, With such weight in one sentence, what Isaiah says so beautifully in a whole stanza. 
the whole, you might have noticed the exchange between him, he, and us, and we, and our, back and forth. He, this, and us, this. He, that, for our sake. Him, us, him, us. There's a great exchange happening. And Paul just grabs that and says in one sentence, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The servant came to be for us what we are so that we could become what he is. This is a great exchange, a great switch. This is what Christ has done. I want you to notice verse 6 said, We are like sheep have gone astray. Now notice how the servant is referenced in verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Which simply does not mean he never spoke. We know Jesus spoke from the cross. He talked to Pilate. It means he didn't speak to defend himself. He didn't try to get himself out of it. He didn't try to say, you guys are wrong. I'm right. He knew that that was all going to be taken care of when he was risen from the dead. Like that would say quite a lot. Boom. (laughs) Hashtag resurrection, right? Like, so he opened on his mouth. But now watch this comparison. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. They had just said that we are like sheep who've gone astray. And then in the next verse, he was like a sheep. God became man because his humanity had run away. He became like us. This was not, see, this is how we write things, right? The all-powerful God just like takes a big erase and says, start over. And that's what we do. If you make a mistake on something, start over. Incorrect some in, in your math problem, you go back and start over. It'd be nice, to, you know, it would, what God's able to do is He doesn't just start these things over. He says, they're lost. Go get them. And you can see the whole heavenly council like, wouldn't it just be easier to blow up the whole universe and start over? <laughs> but God's like, no. If they're lost, why would I Destroy them in their lostness. I made them. I love them. They were created so that they can inhabit my fellowship. I'm going after them. Paul said we hardly even see a good man do that for someone he loves in Romans chapter 5. How much more that God would do that for people who hate him. This is a story too absurd to make up. Now in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We saw that word stricken in verse 8. We also saw it earlier in this passage, uh, stricken. God, um, the, the Jews believed that beauty was a sign of God's blessing, so that the opposite was a sign of the opposite. And also wealth. Wealth was a sign of God's blessing, and the opposite was the opposite. So here you have this guy who's apparently hideous, or there's no form of comeliness to him, and he's not given a good head start in life. And so he's supposed to be a person that God is not really planning to use. Eh, just another person. But this is what, this is the startling reality is that God takes someone whom culture had created this little theology about the fact that that person is despised, that person have a chance, that person is the way they are because they're just not one of God's favorites. And that all of a sudden God's going to use that person to accomplish his becoming king? This is what startling, is changing people's minds about how God operates. So then in verse 10, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to send my servant. And, 
oh, I thought I hoped he would meet those people. We met the bad people. Now he's gone. That's not how it happened. The servant came for the purpose of serving even to the point of death. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. This is such a strange story. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Really? No one likes him. No one gets him. He is being led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's being killed. He's killed along with the wicked. And he's being crushed and put to grief. He's a sin offering. And yet the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Okay, God, let me tell you how you're supposed to do things. Okay? This sounds funny because, well, that's actually what happened. All right, disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified, spat upon, beaten, and in three days I'll rise again. Peter goes, wait a minute! That's not how Messiahs do things. It's a very strange story. Okay, in verse 11, we return to God's voice. So God says, Out of the anguish of his, the servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Yeah, there's going to be anguish, but there's going to be a reward on the other side. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, or great, and great seems to be the best um, translation. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. Right? He was despised, but now he's going to be great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The end. Well, not the end. Next week we see what all this leads to. But... Okay, so I hope you see this, right? 52 is telling us, good news, your God reigns, good news. How did he, how did this good news come about anyways? Oh, glad you asked. Here's a startling story. And really, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they follow this precise pattern. Their message is that Christ is the king. But the story is not what you'd expect in a how-someone-became-king kind of a tale. There's no knights in shining armor. There's no heroes. There is a slaying of a dragon, but it's not with the valiant sword of the king or slaying the dragon and the princess on his arm. Oh, my hero! It's none of that. It's instead, the king comes, stands before the dragon, and willfully lets the dragon swallow him whole. Not knowing that if you swallow the author of life, he turns even death to life. So the dragon's defeated, because his only weapon's death, and life walks out of the carcass. This is how God reigns. He sends his servants into the battle. Not to crush, not to conquer, but to walk the way of their Lord. God is using our trials and he's using our sufferings and he's using our pains to turn us into kings and queens who rule and reign with him. He's using our choices to walk his path, to follow his virtues to follow his word, even when everyone else is not doing that, and when it brings us pain and challenge and social awkwardness to do so, he's using that to form us into the kinds of characters that can hold a crown on their head. I'm wondering if we have settled for a gospel that is good enough to be true. And we present it to people 
just like everything else in the world, you have a problem, we have an answer. Sooner or later, what happens is our young people get presented with this message long enough that they begin to realize, huh, there's a lot of products out there for my problems. Some of them seem to work a little bit better. God is not just a fix-our-problem machine. That is a story good enough to be (laughs) semi-true. But that's the story we're settling for. Because that's the one that's easy for people to digest. That's the one that everyone gets. Oh, yeah, you've got that stain in your shirt. I remember this Super Bowl commercial some time ago when I used to care about the Super Bowl. Um, there was like a coffee stain on a guy's shirt and he's like in a business meeting. He's like, wah, wah, like the stain was doing all the talking even though he was trying to present something. Like the, nobody could hear him because they're all staring at the stain, which is like screaming. That's a problem, right? Coffee stain. Problem. Solution. Tidy racing pen. You just apply it to the shirt. It's gone. Okay. <laughs> If Jesus is reduced to that, you joyless people, he's your joy. You have no self-esteem. He'll give it to you. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of self-help books that are doing that, and they sound much clearer than this antiquated language called the Bible. Because the Bible is not meant to be history's longest-selling self-help book. Our gospel is not good enough to be tried, good enough to be true. It's not too good not to be true wait no it's not too good to be true it's too good not to be true it's so absurd that someone has to step back and say okay um the the way this is put together cannot be human invention in fact even at our greatest creativity we wouldn't come up with this narrative This reflects the story of a God who creates the cosmos out of nothing. It's that kind of creativity. That here the hero comes who's apparently nothing but becomes everything. That out of the dust and the ashes, which is where Israel is, which is where humanity is, he goes there. And wait, you mean he becomes that? That's supposed to end God. To kill God is to end God. No, to kill God is to actually make God greater. That's weird. And yet this is what he does. I'm wondering if we aren't startled enough to cause us to continue to believe and hold and walk in and challenge ourselves with and follow the path through the wilderness of something too good not to be true. Something too absurd and too startling not to press it and say only God can deliver this. I think we're selling ourselves short. And maybe that's why chapter 52 starts with awake, awake. And it's not the first time. 51 verse 17 said, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. 51 verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old. And then back to the other servant passage in chapter 50. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Isaiah, for some chapters now, has been calling for an awakening. And so what does he do? At his final wake-up call, he throws in the most hideous, most confusing, strangest narrative about the servant yet. The final finale of the servant. The one who's going to carry our idols and help us through this path through the wilderness to bring the world around him, to bring true light instead of man-made artificial light. This servant, he shows us something startling and terrifying so that we are shocked into sobriety. So I want us, two things, to be startled and to do some startling. Now, don't give anybody a heart attack. That's not what we're going to try to do. Don't sneak up on them. Boo! Don't sneak up on your spouse in the shower. They don't like that. (laughs) Don't want any slipping injuries. We don't want any cardiac arrest. We... We don't want any, how dare you? Um, I have a habit of walking in the house too quietly, so I, I do it all the time. But uh, 
How do we be startled again? I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I mean, you know, maybe, because we kind of cover this, we've been doing the servant now for a few weeks, but we need to continually remind ourselves what we are holding to and believing. Because some of, some, we're insulated in a Christian society. I mean, a post-Christian society, but the church still exists and has a voice for now. So the cross can become very standard fare. It's white rice without any seasoning, right? Uh, no, we want to put this back in context. So First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing to a people who are obsessed with rhetoric. Rhetoric is the Greek uh, f- fashion of speaking and, s- and style, just public speaking, basically. Um, they had all kinds of traveling preachers come through Corinth. And this church became enamored with, oh, who's got the latest, newest, interesting thing out there? And so Paul's like, going beside himself because everyone's dividing over who's the better teacher and whatnot. It's all a rhetoric game. And Paul, um, in chapter 18, or chapter 1, verse 18, I'll give, we'll read some context before we get to the verse. He wants to defend what he was up to. Like, okay, I get the popularity game. Guys, I studied with some of the greatest philosophers in Tarsus. Like, I know how to play this game, but I didn't, because there's something important, more important. So, in 118, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is to us who are being saved the power of God. Referencing here Isaiah, right? Chapter 53. Like, okay, it's folly to think, oh yeah, that's your deliverer. The one suffering, the one being killed, the one that no, there's nothing powerful about him. Nothing he does causes the world to come around and go like, ooh, tell us your ways. It's amazing. You can lead the best industries and the best companies and the best strategies. And no one's looking at that. They're all looking at him saying, ah, his ideas don't work. But the saved see it. They see it as the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. By the way, this is Isaiah chapter 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Remember, they demand that of Jesus. Greeks seek wisdom and their philosophies. But we preach Christ crucified. There's that oxymoron. Crucified Messiah. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Stumbling block to Jews. You know, part of what startle means is to be set back, to to stutter. Stumble is one of the meanings of the word. Startle the Jews, but in a way that they didn't get up. And folly to the Gentiles. It's absurd to the Gentiles. 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you were to tell someone that someone was crucified, two assumptions would come to their mind immediately. One, they were a very insignificant person. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of the earth. It was a status symbol of what your life was, and now you're going to die this way. And they did not bury crucified people. They were left there for all the world to see. This is what happens when you break Caesar's rules and left there until natural causes make the whole thing disappear, if you know what I mean. It was not a glorious death. A prolonged statement. So they would assume that. And second, they would assume... What kind of an idiot is he for doing something so bad as to be crucified? Everyone knows, just keep Caesar happy and everyone's good. Peace, prosperity. Pax Romana is what it was called. So you're telling me I should follow that guy? Don't you know how the Roman Empire works? 
It's clearly the wisest thing on the planet. It's the greatest empire to ever live. Rome is the eternal city. And you want me to follow the one that, cru- that, that Rome crucified? The one that Rome squashed like a cockroach under its big oversized boot? Is it not a miracle that people believed this message? It sounds to a Roman like sheer rubbish. And that's what Paul says. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's absurdity. It startles the Greek and it stumbles the Jew. But I think our gospel today is good enough to be true. I don't think we're being startled anymore. And I don't mean that we need the shock value of watching Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ all the time. That's not it. That might help you appreciate the cross. The idea, though, is to understand that we're following something that is completely backward from the wisdom of the world. It's completely subverting the kingdoms of the earth. That's the kind of startling thing that we need to recognize once again. Christianity is not just the best of all the theories out there. It is the only one that is absurd enough to be true. And don't forget the word absurd and startling. It is completely hogwash to the rest of the world. Okay. We need to be startled again. And then second, I think if we are, we will live the courageous kind of lives like the servant and we will startle the world again. And yeah, some of them will be stumbled. Some of them will call it folly. But some will recognize it as the power of God. So God is not powerful anymore because we're not letting him be the exalted one. We need to do some startling again. I want you guys, we'll finish here at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Um, this Philippians chapter 2, we're going to do verse 5 through 11, and this little section is believed to be a hymn or some sort of ancient, ancient, early, early Christian creed predating Paul. And that Paul, knowing it as a Christian, incorporates it into his letter. So it's kind of cool to think we're seeing one of the earliest Christian creeds. What did they believe? What did they declare to one another? This, even before Paul... And you're going to see it saturated in the passage that we've studied tonight. So, Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or, to think about that, um, my equality with God is not an ace in my back pocket to use against people when I'm in trouble. He didn't use his God card as leverage. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we go, the levels of absurdity. So here's someone in the form of God, but gave up using that against people, made himself nothing. How nothing? Well, okay, I'll become a human. Wait, 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 wait. Not just a human, but a subhuman, a servant. That's how they saw him in that day. Servants are property. Being born in the likeness of men. And one more level, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So if you're a servant and you're obedient to something, he's a servant of death. He's serving death. That's a really lowly status. To the point of death, and now one more lowly status, even death on a cross. He could have been hung. He could have been beheaded. The cross was the lowest form of death. He goes all the way down to the lowest dregs of humanity possible. And from those dregs, therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, King Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ or Messiah Jesus or King Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's a truth we declared. That's a truth we just studied. That's the good news. But don't miss the startling story of Paul inviting you and I to this path. What did he say? We just read the creed, right? Jesus did this. He came to the dregs of society. God raised him up to be at the highest of the cosmos. This is a tremendous up and down story. But in verse 5, before he cites the creed, he says to the Philippians and to us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? Let me tell you the creed. That mind. That you would become the servant of Isaiah. And you can see some of the things. Uh, he made himself nothing. Isaiah said he poured himself out to death. He, uh, the form of a servant. Remember, it talked about his form. There's no comeliness. There's nothing about him that was attractive. In fact, he had this, this, this form that caused people to shut their mouths at him. Uh, being born like this of men, maybe implied by the worst sheep, he became like a sheep. Uh, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Um, Isaiah uh, said he was killed even death on a cross. But then this part, therefore God highly exalted him. Okay, so we started this passage with, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And we ended with, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Um, he will be exalted Okay, friends, the worship team is going to come up, but we we have a tradition of observing Jesus and saying, "Yay, go Jesus!" But we also have a challenge where over and over the New Testament is inviting us to walk the same path. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths of the wilderness. Jesus shows up. He's walking that path. And Isaiah is inviting all of us, as the New Testament writers knew and took for granted. All of us are supposed to walk this path through the wilderness of this world to the kingdom of God. If Jesus walked the path like this, then we are being asked to walk the path as well. But we can do it because he took the sin off of our shoulders so that we can make it, so that we can follow him. He's carrying us. He's giving us wings. Friends, are we willing to take on the form of the servant? You are if you believe that our good news is too good not to be true. But if it's just good enough to be true, you're not going to want to be the servant. You're going to be somewhere in the middle. Good enough. I wonder if we're willing to take communion tonight to one, be startled again at what Christ has done. But two, to say, as I take this, I want to become like you. And I want to, I want to become the one who shows the folly of the cross to my neighbor, my community, and the world.